0: Revelation 5, 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Christ. We're thankful that He was worthy to kick off all of redemption history, past, present, and future, and we look forward to his return. We thank you, Lord, for the ransom uh, that we have received by his blood. I pray, Lord, that we would grow in our love for Jesus Christ. I pray that he would be glorified in our lives, and Lord, we would ask that he would be glorified tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to Uh, Think deeply about the subject of biblical counseling and how it applies to the church and uh, the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, Lord, we want to express our neediness and dependence upon you for all things, and so we do that now, and we ask that for your glory and our joy. Amen. So, uh, Sarah comes to you. She's overwhelmed, middle age, we'll say she's 40. With life, she's got six kids, change of schedule, an insensitive husband, minor health issues. She's just moved, all these overwhelming things. And she comes to you and she says, I want some counseling. Or will you help me? Or will you listen to me? Where are you going to send her? Well, hopefully, you know, you're all here at a biblical counseling conference, so you would send them to someone who could give them biblical counseling, your pastor, a friend, whoever. Uh, but what does that even mean? What does it even mean? What, what, what does biblical counseling mean? What do we mean by that? Uh, and that's an important question for us to, to ask and to discuss tonight and sort of kick off and, and frame what we'll be talking about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be very practical Today, I think it's practical, um, but it is something that is more foundational. Uh, it's an important question to ask for several reasons. Uh, biblical counseling is, is a movement that is booming. I kind of got into it in 2004, and at that point, it was already kind of well on its way to, to a movement. But at that time, I think maybe there were two books on depression, maybe two or three books on anxiety, whatever. Now, it's you know, kind of just gone crazy. And a lot of people are trying to get on the bangwa- bandwagon, which is encouraging, and, but it's also encouraging many people to adopt the label biblical counseling. And so now everybody's a biblical counselor or doing biblical counseling and we don't know which is which, whatever. And they're trying to do that in order to be seen as legitimate or authentic, depending on what circles uh, they're in. Uh, some people see the errors of psychology more and more, they're doing that, which is great. So people want to distance themselves from something that people don't like, and so they might uh, drop some of the psychological terms that they were using, um, but they're still keeping the same methods. Their counseling's still not biblical. Uh, Other groups are saying one thing and then practicing another. In fact, most Christian psychologists, Christian psychiatrists, would claim that they're biblical. Uh, One association claiming to do Christian counseling wrote in their doctrinal statement, the Bible is inerrant, inspired, and the final authority for all matters About which it speaks. Sounds good. Sounds like they're saying the Bible is sufficient. And then they say the ultimate goal of Christian counseling is to help others move to personal wholeness and interpersonal competence and mental stability and so forth. And so, you know, they're saying one thing, but then we see that what they're actually doing is is fairly man centered. Then some pastors will go to seminary, and they think, hey, I went to seminary, so anything that I say is going to be biblical. And so the counsel I give is actually biblical counseling, but it's actually not biblical counseling. There are deliverance ministries that say that they're biblical. And on top of all that, we live in such a psychologized world that so many Christians actually don't realize how they have been affected or influenced by psychology, even though they read their Bibles regularly. So for an example, we could say, Uh, you know, who in here is an extrovert or an introvert? We like to talk about that. I'm an introvert, you know, I don't like to talk about, I don't like to be around with a lot of people. Well, where do we get those categories from? Uh, To shatter all those people who think they're introvert and they don't need to talk with people. Well, that's good, unless you're a Christian. If you're Christian, well, then you got to love people and do all the one another commands and and so forth. So even there, extrovert, introvert, we've been highly psychologized. And it's hard to try to figure out, you know, really what we're talking about when we're talking about biblical counseling. So this is a relevant question. What do we mean? What are we getting at when we talk about biblical counseling? So I'm going to give you 10 characteristics of authentic biblical counseling. Uh, But just kind of get a feel. I know there's a few pastors. I know some of you. But how many of you are pastors? Just kind of raise your hand or elders, that would fit in there as well. How many this is the first time you're being exposed to biblical counseling? Okay, a few of you. Now, how many people are already doing counseling, informal or otherwise, but you know what biblical counseling is and you're trying to do it? Okay, the rest of you. So we got a pretty good mix. I think that this will be helpful, particularly for the people that this, they're being exposed the first time to biblical counseling, be most helpful for that, good reminder for everybody else, and it hopefully we'll encourage everybody else to ensure that their biblical counseling is actually biblical because it's easy to kind of move away from that. Okay, so we're going to give 10 characteristics of what we'll just call authentic biblical counseling. And uh, pardon my having to drink, but the air here is dry or something is dry, but it's, it's dry, drying me out. I'm parched. I'm going to just run through them all real quick. And... We're going to come back and go through each one of them one by one. So we're going to talk about biblical counseling, how it operates from a biblical understanding of man, how it then sees sin as our main problem and the gospel as the solution, how it flows from the local church and is highly relational, how it is is Christ-like in nature, has biblical goals, relies on the Holy Spirit, is biblical, uses the Bible, gets at the heart of the matter, utilizes prayer and then is anti-integration. So 10 of those, we'll try to hit those uh, kind of briefly and we'll spend a little more time on, on some other than others. Uh, but let's get started here. And first, biblical counseling operates from a biblical understanding of man. So mankind was created as a dependent creature, not independent. Uh, mankind was created as, as someone who needs counsel. They need special revelation from God to understand even their purpose in life, why they are here, right? You can't look to the beautiful hills around us and go, oh, this is why I was created. That doesn't work that way. Genesis 1.28 says, and God blessed them, talking to Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, That's their purpose. God gives them that charge. They were created to need that counsel. They're not gonna know uh, that particular purpose unless God speaks to them and declares it to them. They are dependent beings. They weren't created as independent. God is the only independent being. That's one thing about mankind. Also, we could say that mankind is totally depraved. Hopefully, we all are familiar with Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, That doesn't mean that that. Every human is as bad as they, they could be, but it's just saying that every human, um, every part of their nature, to some degree, is warped by sin. So I kind of think of it as a Lego that's been left out in the sun too long. You ever do that as a kid? I had a whole bunch of Legos. I did that with, and so I just it's in my brain. It was a sad, sad day for me. Uh, but they're all kind of warped, and after that, they didn't quite fit well. So that is mankind's problem, right? We're all kind of warped with sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is desperately sick. You know, our inner man is desperately sick. Who could understand it? Uh, and there's so much more we could say about the doctrine of, of, of man. But for now, all I'm just trying to do is highlight the implications of that understanding for counseling. Uh, because of man's depravity and his dependent nature, the solution to their problems is external to them. So you have all these other forms of counseling that believe that we have the solutions within ourselves to repair and fix broken souls, whether within me or some person can kind of of come up with a philosophy and they have it within them to help fix other people. Rogerian counseling, for example, um, this is kind of quoted from one of those sources, uh, says rather than viewing people as inherently flawed, this is Rogerian counseling, a summary of that, Uh, With problematic behaviors and thoughts that require treatment, person-centered therapy identifies that each person has the capacity and desire for personal growth and change. Rogers termed this natural human inclination actualizing tendency or self-actualization. He likened it to to the way that other living organisms strive towards balance, order, and greater complexity. According to Rogers, individuals have within themselves vast resources for self-understanding and for altering their self-concepts basic attitudes, and self-directed behavior. These resources can be tapped if a definable climate of facilitative psychological attitudes can be provided. Okay, so he's essentially saying the mankind has the, the equipment within them to fix themselves. So if we misdiagnose the problem, then we're gonna get the solution wrong. We're gonna be way off on the mark there. So how we understand mankind and his problems is significantly going to impact our counseling philosophy and the methods that we are using. So biblical counseling seeks to understand man according to how the scriptures define him and describe him. And at least what we've highlighted here is that he's a dependent creature, relies on uh, special revelation, God speaking to him uh, to know his purpose in life at a minimum. And also that he's totally depraved, doesn't have the answers within him. So biblical counseling seeks to understand man according to scriptures. Uh, God's solutions to our problems are actually counterintuitive, or we could say counter our sinful nature. So it's counterintuitive to distrust our own sinful desires, for example. We can look out at the world today and see that's something that's really going awry. Is the world is encouraging uh, mankind to look within and to trust their feelings, trust their desires. Right? That is that is the truth. That's not what the scriptures teach, right? If I know that I'm a sinner and that I was created to be dependent upon my creator God and upon his instructions for life and godliness, then I'm going to go to his word for guidance for all of life's problems. So that's the implication. So biblical counseling operates from a biblical understanding of man. And again, there's a lot more we could say on the doctrine of man from the Bible, but that just kind of gives you, you know, a starting place. Biblical counseling is going to look to the Bible to help them understand mankind. Second, biblical counseling sees sin as our main problem and the gospel as the main solution. Biblical counseling sees mankind's greatest problem as, and then their need is to be reconciled to God. Uh, Kyle touched on this there at the end of his message. Romans 3.21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Uh, Because of mankind's sin, their separation from God, this is what they needed. They needed righteousness. Found in Christ through faith. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath appeaser by his blood to be received by faith. So we're sinners and we need God to act because we're totally depraved. Uh, we have the problems that we have because of sin. That sin then separated mankind from God and so alienated them from their creator God. Okay, this is their biggest problem. Uh, we look at Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind and we see the destruction and the carnage uh, that is left in sin's wake and it starts, you know, right there, uh, right there in the beginning. Murder, hate, strife, marital problems, so on and so forth and continues all the way through deep into the book of Revelation. Um, people suffer from their own sin and from the sin of others, right? They're being sinned against. And also from just the fact of living in a broken and a fallen world. So earthquakes, tornadoes, other natural disasters. Um, but in Genesis 3, we also see the hope of the gospel, the seeds of the gospel, hints at the gospel. In Genesis three fifteen, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the gospel redeems mankind, gives them a new heart, and fixes their sin problem. Now, because then they're reconciled to God through faith in Christ, but then it's a, so we say it's an already not yet salvation. Now, because we're reconciled to God, and we're not a slave to sin, as Kyle pointed out, but also then when Christ returns, and then we'll be perfected, and the battle of sin will be over, and we'll see Christ face-to-face and enter eternal bliss with him. So through faith in in the gospel of Christ, uh, mankind is no longer guilty in the courts of heaven. They're justified, and then that new heart gives them a capacity, a new capacity, to think true things and to want what God wants, and to do that in increasing measure. So the gospel is God's ultimate answer to human suffering. We can't help people without talking about that reality. It is the air we breathe as Christians. We would maybe say it's our worldview. It's the lens by which we're to view everything, right? Obviously, so much more I could say about the gospel, all those things, but just highlighting, as Christians, this is the air we breathe. It's it's the lens we look at all of life, or it should be. Other forms of counseling believe mankind is basically good, as I just mentioned, Um, there would never be a place in that kind of counseling for repentance, if you think about it. If you think that mankind is basically good, then they really don't need a savior. And if they have the solutions, and and really their own standard is their own uh, measure of righteousness, then there is no need for repentance. They believe that sharing the gospel, these other forms of counseling, believe that sharing the gospel is actually unethical. It shouldn't happen in the counseling room. In the book, Counseling and Christianity, Five Approaches, So there's five approaches, and the title of it is Counseling in Christianity. So there's five approaches, the way these books work, and each person gives a chance to give their their counseling philosophy. So this is Christian counseling. Five approaches. Only one, Stuart Scott, a biblical counselor, mentor of mine, only one talks about the gospel and says that he would share the gospel with the people that he's counseling. Uh, Gary Moon writes the chapter on the transformational approach, and he says... There have been times when I was working with clients where I have had to say, what we are doing now no longer seems directly tied to the presenting issues we began with, or anything for which your insurance company would be willing to pay. And then he says that he'd be willing to work with them, and he would be willing to talk to them about maybe the gospel and something in the Bible, but then they would need to kind of redefine the relationship, and what they're doing is no longer counseling, and maybe they would have to do it even in a different place. right? He hints that if that happened, Then he would share the gospel, but he doesn't promise that he would even share the gospel. Uh, This is typically the mindset of most counseling out there. So other uh, forms of counseling misdiagnose the problem, what mankind's greatest need is. And since they misdiagnose that, they come up with the wrong solutions. Uh, In their view, it's just that their upbringing, their nurturing was poor, or their environment, their nature was subpar. If we can fix those things, then people aren't going to have the problems that they're having. So there's no accountability or responsibility for individuals. These kinds of counseling philosophies, this commitment not to share the gospel, actually keeps people from true and lasting help. Uh, to neglect the gospel in counseling, or I would even say to make it not central, is only to rearrange the chairs on that Titanic. The ship is still sinking. And what have you really done? You made it look nice while it was sinking, but you haven't really helped anybody. Uh, and worse, it creates legalists who think that they can do all things in their own strength, and it encourages them away from their need for a savior. So salvation for them is in self-help, not in Christ help. And that's really what happens if you don't share the gospel, and if your counsel isn't saturated with the gospel. All you have done is encourage them to get to hell quicker. You've encouraged them that the strength is, is in themselves and really they're only going to be frustrated. Rearrange the chairs something Titanic. So that's one aspect of biblical counseling. So we've seen biblical counseling operates from a biblical understanding of man, and then it sees sin is our main problem, the gospel's main solution is going to share the gospel and saturate the counsel with gospel. Third biblical counseling flows from the local church and is highly relational. We say this for a few reasons. It needs to flow from the local church. And we talked about this last year if you were here. So if you want a fuller explanation of this, kind of go back to those notes, or I think they're even on this church's sermon website somewhere. But first we say this because of the mission of the local church. The mission of the local church is discipleship, making followers of Jesus Christ. The great commission text, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, Colossians 1.28, Paul says that his aim is to present everyone complete in Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, uh, talks about the desire to bring everyone to mature manhood, likeness. Romans 8.28, we learn that God works everything for good in the believer's life. Verse 29 tells us what that good is, conforming them to the image of Christ, right? The goal is to... Any With any person that we meet, we want to share the gospel with them so that they become a believer. If they're an unbeliever, that's our goal with them. If they're a believer, our aim is that we would present them complete in Christ. But the aim is that, share the gospel so that they might grow in completeness to Christ. It's discipleship. So the mission of the church is that people become followers of Jesus Christ with the goal that they bring him glory by becoming more and more like him. We call that progressive sanctification. That is to say, though, that the church's mission is to change people, to change them from sinner to saint. And again, that starts with the gospel and continues to perfection and Christ-likeness until he returns. And then second, we say that it needs to flow from the local church because of the means of grace that are available in the local church. Uh, The main means of grace, what the Holy Spirit uses to change people and grow them to Christ-likeness is prayer, Scripture, and fellowship. There's more Uh, than than that, but at least those three. Uh, We're going to talk about prayer in a moment, so I'm going to skip that one. Uh, But let's just talk about the word scripture teaching. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And it's talking about the gospel. But really, if we look at the scripture, all of the scripture is funneling towards Christ and the gospel. So it covers all of that. Sanctify them in the truth, right? Grow them in righteousness. Your word is truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says to Timothy, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And then 2 Timothy 4.2, he talks about how preaching and teaching are found in the local church. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that wonderful text says, we behold Christ, we change. Where is Christ exalted and explained and taught and beheld? The local church, the pillar and buttress of the truth, of the gospel. It, it, you know, the church is what is protecting the gospel down through all the centuries until now. We have a true gospel because local churches, uh, from the apostles on down to now, were in charge of the gospel and maintaining its purity, and now we have it. And that's entrusted to the local church. Uh, scripture is one of the means the Spirit uses to change His people. It's found and taught in the local church. Um, then we would talk about fellowship. Kyle you know, put a plug in for this there at the end as well. Uh, Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? Every day we're to be exhorting and encouraging each other. Uh, Matthew 18, we have, you know, I call it a rescue mission. Other people call it a church discipline passage, uh, but there's care there for your brother in, in Matthew 18. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, uh, admonish the unruly, encourage faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. It's given to all believers in order to do that with each other. Ephesians 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Truth is often taught through Christian fellowship. Friendship and encouragement and help and admonishment and accountability. Iron sharpening iron. Those sort of things. Think about some of the truths that you have learned. You might have heard it and learned it intellectually, but where did you really learn it? in life circumstances with other believers coming alongside of you saying, hey, this is the way we need to go. Hey, don't go that way. We need to go this way. Or by their example, oh, that's what it looks like. That's what a godly marriage looks like. Oh, that's what godly parenting looks like. Oh, that's what a, a guy who has patience looks like, right? And counselees have this need for fellowship. That Hebrews 3.13 uh, 3, text is so informative, isolation is damaging, Throughout this whole COVID thing, you know, all these studies were done and guess what? Suicides are on the rise. Skyrocketed during that time. I saw it in my own ministry. People who were doing well because they had incorporated the means of grace into their life by attending fellowships, small groups. You know, getting one-on-one with people, all that discipleship. They were doing well, like in a battle, of, you know, in their battle with depression or something like that. But then COVID and everything that kind of happened there took away that means of grace momentarily for some churches, and they just started doing poorly. Uh, isolation is damaging. Christian fellowship is one of the means the Spirit uses to change his people. It's found and taught in the local church. And then third, we say this because of the pastor-elder function. You know, why does biblical counseling need to flow from the local church? Well, because of the function of biblical elders. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14 says, and, and, and Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ and to all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then Colossians 1, Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so soul care is, is a stated function of the elders of a local church, right? Their, their gifting is particularly, particularly to be a blessing for the people in the congregation to help them grow in Christ-likeness, to maturity, which means they grow in, in uh, being able to handle problems in a way that honors the Lord in a progressive sort of function. And biblical elders, that is their function in the bodies to help facilitate that. And then last, we say this because of the way believers are to relate to each other. These are all the one or another commands we see in the New Testament. Bear one another's burdens, that are love each other, exhort one another, admonish one another, so on and so forth. Galatians 6, you know, one through three, that are bear each other's burdens. Come along, exciter, live live life together with each other. So all that to say, right, we could talk more about that, but all that to say that other forms of counseling want to isolate counseling. Right? They want to see counseling as something that you, you you go to school for, you become a professional, you get a little plaque that says your name on there, and then you find a little place in town and you, you know, you hammer up your little slack there, and then you charge $150 an hour for people to kind of. Pour out, you know, rent a friend. That's what I call it, rent a friend. 150 bucks. You know what? The church can do it for free. You know, we got how many people in here? And, And you can sit down and have someone listen to your troubles for free. I'm convinced that secular counseling works to some degree because of that. Because someone is actually sitting down and at least feigning interest in their problems. The church can do way better. That's my point. The church can do way better. Uh, Counseling ought not to be a parachurch ministry. It should flow from the local church so that it can use the means of grace and be blended in as one of the ministries of that local church. Um, I think also sometimes they want to create sort of an elitist atmosphere. You know, you got the white coats. These are the people with the knowledge. Everybody else doesn't know anything, and they're kind of above the rest. And so they like to keep kind of this distinction of professional and then, you know, the, the client. Well, that's not what we see in Scripture. Okay, so biblical counseling is committed to ministry flowing from the local church, which is highly relational. And I would submit to you that it's not biblical counseling if it's not flowing from the local church. It's something other than that because it's not using the means of grace that I just kind of went through. Um, Biblical counseling is simply one sinner coming alongside another sinner, showing them where help can be found. That's it. Hopefully it's a more mature believer coming alongside a less mature believer. That would be the most productive. But sometimes it's whoever in the church is coming alongside another believer. So biblical counseling is not biblical if it doesn't flow out of the local church. The fourth, biblical counseling is Christ-like. Biblical counseling believes that Jesus Christ is our model counselor three primary things we learn about counseling from the example of Christ. There's a lot more, but I'm just trying to give you a taste and then you can see what I'm doing. I'm relating it to other forms of counseling that we would say are not authentic biblical counseling. Um, So first, Jesus sought to identify with those he counseled. He entered into their world literally. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Isn't that wonderful? Christ entered into our shoes Literally. Philippians 2, 7, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he became like us. He identified with us in every respect except for sin, as Hebrews four fifteen says. He identified with us physically. He did this in order to be our high priest forever, to be our counselor. He identified with us cognitively. Mark 2, 8, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He identified emotionally. Matthew 14, 14 talks about how he had compassion on the multitudes. Uh, he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We can get, all that to say, if, if our counseling is, is to be like Christ, we can get emotionally involved and we can feel what people are feeling. We can bear their burdens. In fact, you can't bear somebody's burdens if you aren't <laughs> exercising some sort of compassion towards them, feeling something of what they, what they feel. Sometimes people reject what we're saying because they don't think that we're, they don't think that we'll, that we care. We'll talk more about that tomorrow morning. Galatians 6.2, you know, talks about bearing each other's burdens. We do need to feel the pain of our counselees. And we need to understand their situation and and, and think what it might be like if we were in their situation. And then it's going to change some of the things of what we say, but it's really going to change how we say it, for sure. Because Christ did that. Now, we're not Christ, but also that means we're not above Christ. Second, Jesus spoke the truth to those he counseled about their main problem. Uh, In general, we see this in John 3, 19 through 21. We know that men love darkness. In John 15, Jesus is talking about how men love sin, hate to be confronted about their sin. Luke 5, uh, 27 to 32, Their problem is that they're sinners. Jesus is saying this, Luke 7, uh, 40 to 50, Jesus was in the home of Simon. You remember that? I love that. That's one of my favorite stories in in the Bible. The woman comes to him crying, weeping. She wipes his feet with her tears. Jesus says her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. But he highlights that her problem was sin. Most people, many people in our world today would say, so harsh for him to say your sins, which are many. Why would he say that? Well, because he was actually trying to help her. He was speaking the truth to her, helping her see her need and what her real problem was. That's love it's something other than love to not tell them the truth. And if we don't use the Bible, if we don't share the gospel, we're not telling them the truth. Jesus spoke the truth to the people that he ministered to, and so our counseling needs to be like him. Generally that, specifically, you know, his godly and holy life challenged their sinful thoughts, desires, motives, words, and actions. So as biblical counselors, we're seeking to be that to other people, to live a holy life. And I'm sure if I asked... You know, a show of hands, how many people have been convicted by someone, others, someone else's holy life in their, in their local church, everybody would raise their hands. And then, third, we, we model our counseling after Christ because Jesus spoke the truth regarding the solution to their problems. Okay, he didn't merely interpret and explain the nature and the cause of their problems, he also provided the solution to their problems. That's what Christ did. Remember the, the parable of the rich young ruler in Luke 18 his situation, his need was exposed, and a solution was provided. John 4, you have the woman of Samaria. Christ presented, you know, highlighted her problem and presented her with a solution, with authority and with boldness. And we need to speak the truth regarding the solution to people's problems. We want to do it in love, but we do need to speak the truth. Again, all I have to say is that other forms of counseling are based off the technique and style of sinful men and women. We wanna base our counseling off of the perfect God man, off of Jesus Christ. Uh, they teach a separation from the counsel and the counselee, as I, as I just mentioned. The professional and, and the client keep that separation. You know, uh, they're never gonna give their number out and say, hey, call me at home. Something comes up. I just told somebody else, "It's like, call me. They're having a hard time with a, just last week. Uh, 65-year-old guy having marriage issues on all kinds of medication for a myriad of health issues. And he's like, I'm just having a hard time getting to the, even remembering I'm supposed to do the, the homework. And then when I start to do it, I'm just having a hard time pushing through it. I'm like, well, call me. Call me and I'll encourage you. I'll hold you accountable to it. I'll actually read it with you. I'll do that. Or I don't know how many young guys in the, in the seminary struggling with pornography. I'm like, well, call me. Or we'll have someone else in, in the congregation. You know, Call them. And I'll try to sleep tonight. So they te- but, but other forms of counseling will never do that, right? So if we have the mindset, this is a brother coming alongside another brother, or so on yeah. and so forth. Um, other forms of counseling guide off of personality and intellect or pragmatism for their methods and insights. Think of all the different kinds of counseling. Freudian. What does that really mean? Well, it means this guy Freud, he's the one who did these studies, and came up with this philosophy for counseling, and then said, this is how you're supposed to do it. And everyone's like, oh, that's so profound. But we have Christ. And we could go on down the line there. We have Christ, the God-man, the one who, as John eight twenty nine explains, always did what was pleasing to the Father. Isn't that amazing? The true light, we read, which gives light to the world. That's who Christ is. He's the true light who gives light to the world. Uh, The one, as John 1, 17 describes, is full of grace and truth. And so biblical counseling strives to to counsel like Christ and use his methods. And so Christ is the biblical counselor's guru. Sounds like a cool t-shirt. Jesus is my guru. We should make some of those up and pass them out at Counseling conferences, I think. I think, I, I think they would sell, but it is true, right? And so Sarah, who I kind of mentioned earlier, she didn't need to hear my philosophy of life. And if you hang around me long enough, I've got my own philosophy that's not found in the Bible. You know, Boise State Broncos, the best football team in the world. You need to root for them, those kinds of things. That's right, there is some Idaho folks. This is the first time ever <laughs> of... Many, many years. So it's just refreshing to hear that. Thank you. Actually, last week we just did a welcome, and I always tease people if they don't give me information. Welcome them as, as members of our church. And I always, if they don't give me information, I say, I introduce them and say, and this person's so and so, and they love Boise State football. And then they always give me like this, you know? So finally. And I said, sometime I'm going to say that, and someone is going to like say yes. But, but Sarah didn't need my philosophy of life. She didn't need to know Freud's wisdom or, or, or Plato's. She didn't need some method of Skinner's. She needed pointed to Christ. She, she needed perfect wisdom. All this other wisdom is, is flawed. She needed taught Christ's way with Christ's methods because these we can trust. Our aim is to be like Christ in all we do, and so why wouldn't our counseling seek to guide off of Christ? Fifth, biblical counseling has biblical goals. This one is a huge one. If you're trying to discern whether your counseling is biblical or some other ministry is actually doing biblical counseling, this is one that's really helpful. Uh, Every counseling model has goals. You know, when is counseling over? When are we done? Uh, How they answer that question is going to determine if they're biblical or not. Uh, The goals of biblical counseling are biblical goals. What does the Bible say the goal is? Well, first on a macro level, the goal is to bring glory to God. Isaiah 43, 7 says of God's people, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. That is why we exist. That is why we're created. Then on a practical level, putting kind of some nuts and bolts on that is Christ-likeness. Being conformed into the image of Christ. Uh, we already mentioned Romans 8, 28, and 29, right? All, God works all things for good, but the good is that He's making us into the image of, of Christ. And we know from John 8, 29, as it says that Christ always did what was pleasing to the Father. So as we become like Christ, we're perfectly pleasing the Father. We know Christ perfectly glorified the Father. So as we become like Christ, we are glorifying the Father more and more and in an increasing measure. You see other forms of counseling, let the counselee set the goal. Come in and see the counselor. The counselor's gonna say, what do you wanna see happen here? Well, you know, I wanna have a happy marriage. I wanna lose weight. I wanna be able to, to get things dirty in my home. I'm too much of a perfectionist. Or, you know, I wanna be able to, to drive across that bridge and, and not have a panic attack. Real things that people struggle with. Or, you know, when is normal achieved? Well, normal... Uh, What's normal? What's normal for a a human being? Uh, Normal in other forms of counseling is societal averages. Well, homosexuality, you know, 30 years ago was abnormal. Well, today it's normal. So so societal averages are always kind of changing. It's a moving target. Uh, So listen to these other kind of forms of, of counseling, psychodynamic counseling. It provides insight concerning inner motivations so that psychic pain will be reduced. Spend a lot of time with dream analysis, hypnosis, and, and so forth, and this would be Freudian, we'd call it. The goal there is reduce pain. That's the goal of counseling. Uh, Behaviorist. Right? Change maladaptive behavior patterns into more adaptive ones. Do this through selective reinforcement. That would be Skinner, Skinner kind of counseling. B.F. Skinner. Right? Better patterns. But who gets to define what better is? See, that is the problem. There is no standard of that, so it's really either the counselee or the counselor. What, what defines what is normal for us, right? scripture. Uh, cognitive counselor. Change irrational destructive thought patterns into more realistic, constructive thought patterns, similar to Skinner. Existential counselor. Help the counselor to become more congruent, authentic, in touch with their feelings. Develop more self-esteem and better self-image. Is that a biblical goal, to have better self-image? No. To have accurate self-image is a biblical goal. Uh, to be like Christ and spend one's life for Him, to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Uh, to consider others better than ourselves, Philippians two three, and then you have family systems therapist uh, reduce dysfunctional family relationships and promote more functional harmonious relationships in the family. God and His will is not the central focus, but the biblical counselor. The goal is different from every non-Christian system, and either in even some who call themselves biblical or Christian counseling. Uh, biblical counseling goals go far beyond all those other goals. Uh, Traps to fall into that you want to keep out of that is biblical counselors need to avoid allowing themselves or the counselee to adopt totally unbiblical goals. For example, to vindicate that the husband is right and the wife is wrong, or being comfortable with her own sexuality, or permission to get divorced, so on and so forth. So you can't do that. Uh, but biblical counselors also need to avoid allowing self or counselees to adopt insufficient biblical goals. You know, good marriage is to make us happy. Well, that's not the goal in life. Happiness isn't the goal in life. Bringing God glory is. And God may receive glory with you not being happy. Difference between happiness and joy there. Um, financial security. That's a great goal, um, but it's not the goal. Having a devotion every day. Uh, that's a means to another goal, right? And if you get that turned upside down, you're not going to be pursuing the right goal. And, you know, we could say peace at any, at any price. Peace is good, but not at any cost. So biblical counseling has the goals to exalt Christ, to please him, and to form the counselee to the image of Jesus Christ, because this glorifies the Lord. So, the counselor's task is to help the counselee do this in practical ways in everyday living, exhorting them. And so, then when is counseling done for the biblical counselor? When, when are we finished with counseling? Well, when they are bringing God glory, growing in Christ likeness with the regular means of grace that their local church provides and, and their own time in the Word provides. Uh, they're doing that, pursuing that on their own, not perfection, but they're working towards that on their own, without you. That's when counseling is done for the biblical counselor. And really normal for us is Christ and then Adam before the fall. Six here, biblical counseling relies on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit indwells true believers. He is the best counselor. Uh, Just listen to some of the things the Bible claims is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then think of these things in light of what happens when we counsel or in our everyday life. John six sixty three says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, Galatians 5, 25 talk about how the Holy Spirit can give life to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. John 3, 3 and Titus 3, 5, the Holy Spirit there is described as being able to cause people to be born again, to be regenerate, to be renewed, to make them new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Philippians 3:3 3, 3 says, "For we are the circumcision, of the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh." Right. So the spirit in us can make us want to worship God from the heart, not mere externalism. John 14:16, Jesus says, "And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Spirit provides help and comfort. John 16, seven, I'm gonna go through these kind of lightning fast, but you'll just kind of get the whiff of it. Uh, John 16, seven, the spirit can convict of sin, righteousness and judgment. We can't convict people of sin, right? If, if, if someone is committing adultery, we can't convict them of sin. The Holy Spirit has to do that. We can point them to the word and to the church and the other means of grace, and pray for them, but we can't convict them of the, spin the spirit does. Romans 5.5, 5, you know, uh, spirit can pour out God's love in our hearts. If someone is saying, you know, they, they know intellectually that God loves them from the text, but they just don't feel it, well, the Holy Spirit can help them in that. Romans 8.2, the uh, spirit can set us free from love, law of sin and death. Other texts uh, teach that, that the spirit can enable us to, to put sin to death in our lives. All those passages that Kyle just talked about can deliver us from a spirit of slavery and bondage to fear, so on and so forth. Spirit can produce in us righteousness, peace, and joy, uh, can cause us to be abundantly hopeful. Uh, How many people who are struggling in life uh, need hope? Well, the Spirit gives hope. Uh, The Spirit can enable us to be made holy, to purify us. And so the Holy Spirit is the real counselor, and the Holy Spirit is powerful. Uh, You know the text in 1 Corinthians uh, 6.11, where it kind of gives a list of, of all these people who won't enter the kingdom of God. And then 1 Corinthians six eleven says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit is powerful to change lives. You see, other forms of counseling neglect the Holy Spirit because they don't use His means or rely on Him to change people. They rely on man's wisdom, anything but the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some believe that it's also unethical to discuss the gospel or to also rely on the Holy Spirit. I think at the end of the day, it's actually unbelief. They don't really believe that the Holy Spirit can, will change people. And so they resort to their own resources which are far less sufficient for the task of counseling. But since all that is true, That reality for us, knowing that, is going to significantly influence our counseling, isn't it? If the Holy Spirit is the agent of change, then we should expect Him to use the means that He has provided for change, and we're going to use them. Confident that the Spirit is going to change people right before our eyes. If the Holy Spirit is the agent of change, then we should expect Him to use the men and women that He has designated to produce that change. We just talked about that members of the local church. If the Holy Spirit is the agent of change, then there is hope in any situation and with any person who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. I need to hear this regularly. I have like five situations at at our church there in Louisville that I look at from a human perspective, apart from belief in the Holy Spirit, and I go, it is absolutely hopeless. No way. Well, I'm in the wrong business, aren't I? Uh, We've got to believe the Holy Spirit can change people, and that needs to influence my counseling, and it needs to influence my hope as well. If the Holy Spirit is the agent of change, then we have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and seek to get to know His mind, not Freud's mind, not Skinner's mind, but the Spirit's mind. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change, and we have to depend and rely on Him in all of our attempts to personally change or help others change, and be careful not to usurp the work of the Spirit and play God, and not try to force change with ungodly methods or coerce people into agreement. We won't try to be the Holy Spirit in our counselees' lives. If you're not going to counsel, then don't be the Holy Spirit in your kids' lives. If you don't have kids, then don't be the Holy Spirit in your, uh, in your spouse's life. If you don't have a spouse, then don't be the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who are in your church, other, other members in your church. But if the Holy Spirit is agent age of change, then we have to give him the credit for any ministerial success, right? The Holy Spirit, though, is the primary counselor. And then seventh, biblical counseling is biblical. You know, what makes biblical counseling biblical? Well, we'll just go through some things to kind of think about. Biblical counseling is based on certain fundamental beliefs about the Bible. Uh, the belief that the Bible is inspired. The Bible is God's revelation to man. It is inerrant. It means that it's without error. Whatever God says is errorless. It's also authoritative. When the Bible speaks, that's it. It's understandable with proper hermeneutics. Most of the Bible is easy to understand. The major doctrines of the Bible are clear and lucid. Biblical counseling, under that same heading of biblical counseling, is biblical. Biblical counseling is based upon certain beliefs about the way the Bible should be viewed and how it should be used and how it should be interpreted should be interpreted by using the grammatical historical approach of hermeneutics, just the science of interpreting the Bible. The literal meaning is the most likely. Pay attention to grammar. Uh, Pay attention to where paragraphs are. Pay attention to the context. Uh, The text should determine the theology. It should interpret itself. So on and so forth. Biblical counseling is also based on the belief that the biblical counselors should be theologians. That means that biblical counselors should understand all of life, including man and nature, and, and, and the causes and solutions to his problems through a biblical theological grid, kind of like what we've been talking about. You need to have a biblical worldview. So if you want to be a biblical counselor, if you want to help disciple people, then you need to get to know the Bible well. Study systematic theology, what the Bible says about a particular issue. Study biblical theology. Uh, study how uh, different authors taught different doctrines and how other authors of the Bible interacted with those authors. And then practical theology. That's really what biblical counseling is, is it's practical theology. It's taking what we learn from the Bible and applying it to a specific situation in life, this person's marriage, this person's struggle with depression or perfectionism or whatever. Uh, But biblical counselors know their Bibles and they believe it is applicable and necessary for everyday living. It's based on the conviction the Bible is comprehensively sufficient for understanding people's problems and the solution to their problems. Again, last year we did a whole session on that, so I'll be brief here. But biblical counselors believe the Bible is sufficient for all counseling issues. Counseling matters, non-organic, non-physical issues. Those we would send to you know, a doctor, an MD. But all non-organic issues, counseling issues, things that people come and look out and seek, seek counseling for, um, the Bible is sufficient for those. Uh, they believe that the best context for counseling is the ministry of the local church, as we mentioned. Uh, they understand that preaching is the public ministry of the word and that that public, public ministry of the word is preventive counseling. And then one-on-one counseling that we call biblical counseling is simply the private ministry of the word. And really sees biblical counseling as, a, as a, an intensive, focused uh, aspect of discipleship. In fact, that's what we call it at our church, discipleship counseling. It's necessary when, when their problems have gotten to such a degree that the regular ministries of the church just aren't helping and they need somebody to kind of spend a little bit more focused time helping them work through all the myriads of, of problems. But it's nothing other than discipleship counseling. Uh, it's based on the conviction that the Bible must have functional authority in counseling. Psalm 119, 128, we could pick a bazillion texts, right? Uh, but that one says, therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. And so biblical counseling doesn't only confess sufficiency, it practices sufficiency, right? They actually use the Bible in counseling. They're opening up the word and they're studying text just like Kyle did. He modeled it for us, going through Romans 6 and Romans 8 and applying it to that area of, of Pornography, opening up, reading, this is what the text says, here's how it applies to your life. They help, I mean, they open the scriptures and help them understand their problem uh, from scripture, the nature of the problem, and then they help them understand the solution of the problem from the scriptures. It's also based on the conviction that when used by the Holy Spirit, the Bible has incredible power to transform and change lives, what we just talked about. It's also based on the conviction that God's word is the main instrument that God uses in accomplishing the primary and secondary goals of counseling, bringing God glory and becoming like Christ. Primary means is, is, is God's word. So all these other forms of counseling adopt methods and philosophies from other psychological models. And then they just kind of tag Scripture onto it. And the model isn't built from Scripture on up. And then they're actually not using counseling uh, even in the sessions. Uh, they're just using it maybe as a, as a proof text, uh, picking one from here, one from here, and not applying it in its context, and it's actually not even sometimes the truth. So biblical counseling seeks to be biblical in the way that we've just kind of described it. Uh, Eighth, biblical counseling gets at the heart of the matter. We're going to talk about that tomorrow night. That'll be my, that's my favorite lecture. Uh, I think it is probably the most integral to the counseling that I particularly do, but we'll talk about it more then. And then ninth, biblical counseling utilizes prayer. I'm running out of time, so i got to just kind of briefly touch on this. But just think about what the Scripture says, uh, what prayer does. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You can think of all these other texts about prayer and exhortations to prayer. Colossians 1.9, Paul prays that that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If someone is fully pleasing to the Lord, do you think that they're going to be struggling and wallowing in, in some of the problems that they're wallowing in? Not if they're fully pleasing to the Lord. Paul prays for what they need and that's what they need. And he's confident that the Lord will answer that prayer. So Christian and non-Christian counselors, they won't pray with the counselees for the same reason. They think it's unethical, um, unprofessional. Even some seminaries, they, when they're teaching a preaching class, they don't teach the, the preachers to be uh, to pray before they sit down and and. and attend to that task. In fact, many ministers barely pray at all. But prayer was about our first importance. With Paul, he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1, first of all then, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Uh, prayer ought to be one of the first things that we do with people. It's an act of faith, and it expresses our dependence in God's independence. It's a humble act. It's saying, Lord, we're relying on you and we, we need help. And we understand that reality. You're the only independent being. And so that act of even just praying with our counselees, asking for the Lord's help, is something that highly exalts the Lord and brings Him glory. So in the act of counseling, we want to honor the Lord as well. To neglect prayer is not bringing the Lord glory. Charles Bridges in his book, The Christian Ministry, says of prayer, it is the appointed medium of receiving spiritual communications for the instructions of our people. Those who walk most closely with God are most spiritually intelligent in the secret of his covenant. Prayer fits us to advocate the cause of our people before God as well as to sympathize with their difficulties and to lay ourselves out in their service. Probably the laborious fervency of Epaphras' secret exercises were as fruitful as his public work. Then he says, and who knows, but we shall find that our most successful efforts for our people were the hours, not when we were speaking to them from God, but when we were speaking for them to God. Richard Baxter, that famous Reformed pastor, wrote, A pastor who does not love prayer does not belong to that church. He is the enemy, not the shepherd of the flock. Pray first of all. Lord, help me to pray more. And then Jay Adams, maybe the father of biblical counseling, said, Any counseling which prayer does not play a prominent role is humanistic counseling. That is to say, it is relying on man's own strength, fleshly counseling. Right? So if prayer isn't an essential tenet of the counseling process, then it's humanistic counseling, which means it is arrogant counseling, and it can't call itself biblical. And then last, biblical counseling is anti-integration. What is integration? Well, simply put, it's taking the findings of psychology, right? Studies external to Scripture, external to Scripture, about the inner man, the soul, counseling issues, and then using them in counseling. And that is regardless of whether it's called Christian or non-Christian. The biblical counselor sees psychology as a worldview or a psychology or a philosophy that competes with the Bible, and so sees integration not only as unhelpful, but as dangerous to the soul. You know, in Genesis 3, the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Colossians 2 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So because of the sufficiency of Scripture, biblical counseling doesn't integrate. It doesn't you know, pick and choose and kind of just listen to everybody else. Oh, that sounds good. And then try to mix it with the Bible and put it together. That's basically integration. So if you want to know if someone's counseling is biblical, then ask them what they teach in counseling. So I've had an integrationist tell me, no, we're, we're biblical. They don't call themselves integrationists. They say, I'm a biblical counselor. And then I ask them, what do you teach? And then I hear that they teach uh, reparative therapy or 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 whatever, they they use dreams and memories and go back in memories and try to repair these memories and fix that. Where did you get that from? You didn't get it from the Bible. Where did you get it from? Oh, and it's gonna be from something outside of the Bible. So you have to ask them what you teach uh, because they're gonna claim that they're biblical. But the Bible says you know them by their fruit. If they teach the scripture, then they're biblical counselors. If they teach psychological findings, which is the study of man about man, then it's integration. So all of that that we've said, uh, those are 10 distinctives of authentic biblical counseling. Uh, There's more than that, but those are some that kind of came to my mind as I've thought about counseling over the years and have helped me uh, kind of discern what has been biblical counseling and also things that challenge my own counseling to make sure my own counseling is biblical as well. Um, Out of time, let's go ahead and pray. If you have questions, you can come to me up front and I'll be around, but let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for... Your word, we're thankful that that, uh, you didn't leave us to flail around on our own, that for the uh, existence of mankind, uh, they have not been without help in overcoming personal problems in their life, non-organic problems, uh, but they have been dependent upon your word the whole entire time, and your word has been sufficient. Uh, Lord, help us to honor you and exalt you Uh, and be biblical in our counsel. I pray that you'd give us great sleep tonight, that we'd have strength and energy to serve you tomorrow with zeal and passion and energy, and pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored. Keep us safe as we uh, go our separate ways tonight. In Christ's name, amen.